Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and as always I'm joined by my colleague Paul Rickard. Hi Paul. Good afternoon Peter. So today Paul, we've got some very interesting high achievers. We'll be talking to David Chudhope, who's the CEO of Macquarie Telecom Group. Uh, This is a company a lot of people haven't heard of. Well, they might if they've ever gone and tried to look up the stock code MAQ, thinking they were looking for Macquarie Group, yeah. and end up with Macquarie Telecom, because Macquarie Telecom, I think, had, uh, had, it's been around for some time. It's actually one of Australia's, uh, uh, you know, it's a junior telco, but had a lot of success, yeah. and uh, stock price up near $22. And so, I think David used to work for Macquarie Bank, which I, I, I think is <laughs> quite clever in so doing they, that. So if you look at the stock code MAQ, that's Macquarie Telecom, it's a company that, uh, you know, it really provides services to other major, major corporations. It's mm. not in the retail space, no. but it is one of Australia's uh, data and uh, telco success stories, yeah. and it's had a very good return for shareholders, Peter. Yeah. So. And, and, and what I like about David, apart from the fact that I taught him many years ago at University of New South Wales, is that he, he, he was an entrepreneur. He and his brother, and I, I mentioned this when, when – I will mention it to him when we talked to him. His brother used to take the, a pioneer bus from Sydney to Melbourne to go and visit – potential clients didn't even fly so they'll they developed this business on the smell of an oily rag and now it's a company with a 22 dollar share price um and it's been a very very successful business builder now speaking of people that you taught or didn't teach did you teach Percy Allen? No, I did not. Percy is a little bit older than me, I think. And, but I, I lived in awe of the, of the great work Percy Allen did as head of New South Wales Treasury. And he's the guy who does our market timing um, service on, on our, our Switzer illustrious business. Well, he does. That's markettimingaustralia.com.au, which, of course, you can subscribe for. But the interesting thing about what Percy is, he, uh, apart from the... Um, the market timing aspects, he does write some really interesting stuff that we publish in the uh, Switzer Report. Yep. Last week's piece, which we're going to talk today about, Peter, is about, uh, about, about this, some, not so much the crash scenario, but is, it, is there going to be a switch in stocks? In other words, something that's become a little bit topical the last week is the move out of the so-called growth and momentum stocks yeah. back to the good old Vase stocks. And yeah, and I think a lot of people don't understand the difference. We will explain that. I love the topic, the, the topic heading of his story. Will there be a crash or a switch to stocks? Yeah, <laughs> so he's got some really interesting answers on that. Yeah, smart guy, very smart guy. And finally, we, we finish off with the managing director and uh, chairman of A.H. Beard. Now, A.H. Beard a lot of people might not know, but it's, it's arguably Australia's biggest manufacturer of mattresses. And um, a few years ago, John Howard went to uh, Shanghai to open up their bed bedding shop in Shanghai, where they sold a bed for eighty thousand dollars. 
And the interesting thing about this business, Peter, of course, it's a family business. It's currently the fourth generation involved in the business. The fifth generation is also getting through. involved. Yeah. So, uh, and there are a lot of family businesses out there, Peter, and that has some yeah. challenges. Well, this will um, shock you, Paul Ricard. Yep. If you put all the family businesses together, it's the biggest business sector in Australia. That does shock me, and that comes as I think September nineteen is Family Business Day. Exactly. So, or National Family Business Day. So, uh, we're not talking about that, but I want to actually learn more about uh, AH Beard and uh, just some of the challenges yeah. in running a family Without business. Doubt. That's our show. We're talking about success. We're talking about making money. We're talking about doing all the sort of things that are very valuable in life. Well, not all things, but most things. That's the Switch Show. So without any further ado, let's go and talk to David Shuthope, CEO of Macquarie Telecom Group. David, thanks for joining us on the Switzer Show. Thank you. All right, I should actually point out that uh, I not only taught Scott Morrison, but I also taught David Shuthope, and I'm very happy to be interviewing you after your great achievements, David. Tell us a lot what you've done a lot of people would love to do. Basically, it was a start-up with you and your brother, if I remember rightly, and you used to catch a bus to Melbourne because you were too cheap to get airfares. The airfares were very dear in those days. Is it your uh, <laughs> But how, how, where did the idea come from and how do you think you're able to go from a start-up situation to where you are today? Well, we did it the hard way. We started up just with uh, our own savings and my previous job in banking. Uh, and we built it up one customer at a time. It was a... It was a it was a startup, a tech startup, uh, and here in Sydney, and uh, you know we focused always on one customer segment, the business customer, and we had to really make sure every customer we acquired was profitable, so we could we could fund our growth, uh, and uh, it was challenging. I mean, you really had to take great care of the customer, and customer service was always part of our ethos, partly out of necessity, um, but partly also out of a differentiator. Biggest challenge we had in that time was that Telstra was um, you know, it was a monopolist uh, and was quite and quite um, willing to use its monopolistic power to crush competition, uh, willing to use lawyers uh, to uh, grind the companies down, and indeed a lot of companies in the telco sector went out of business under pressure from Telstra. Uh, so you know there's some real challenges at the same time, uh, but fundamentally, people just loved competition. They loved choice. And they love being treated as customers rather than subscribers. How can you identify a critically important customer that you picked up, which then became the, well, in your mind, the proof that you're really going to make this into a major operation? In my mind, I think you once cracked a Fairfax contract, but that might not be the one. You would say, but I remember thinking, well, these guys are doing pretty well getting a big contract at a time when Fairfax was a very strong competitor in the market. Yeah, look, you, you always remember those early customers, uh, the ones that have the faith to back you when you're, you have no customers or just a couple. Uh, and I came from the banking background and it was a great lesson in life because the corporates that I'd sort of known quite well in the banking environment and had maybe gone out of my way to help them, help them with their business with the bank, I was fairly sure that... I started my own business that, that somehow or other there'd be, um, there'd be a, a warm welcome. Mm. And there are other businesses in the bank where you just met them briefly and you'd had a, a sort of a brief engagement but hadn't really built too much of a relationship. When I actually started the business, it was interesting. The opposite occurred. And while all were willing to have a cup of coffee with me, the ones that bought 
actually had no relation, had no, it was not related to whether my relationship was close or not. But I think it really was more related to whether some people were willing to give you a chance, an opportunity, uh, and some people uh, inherently just would rather not take the risk. Uh, some people, I think, recognised that you're going to offer them something different in terms of service and cost savings and better billing, which was uh, all quite revolutionary concepts at the time in, in a monopoly environment. Uh, and some people kind of heard all that, but there was always a reason not to move. So you really appreciate those early clients that, that gave you the chance. I remember um, a company called Coates Brothers, um, long-term client of ours, uh, Smith, what's now called Smith & Nephew, um, was a great early client of ours. Uh, there's also a wonderful entrepreneurial American business called Lincoln Electric Company. It was one of the first companies to have uh, give, give shares to their staff, in, profit shares, not share shares, but profit shares out of the business. Um, they also gave me the opportunity. Mm. So you can remember them very fondly. Uh, then, but I'd say the client that kind of really uh, was, a, was a game changer for us was um, an organisation called the Jardine Fleming Group out of Hong Kong. And we'd had a number of their businesses had been clients of ours, including Yord Manette, uh, the stockbroker. And there was a gentleman there who'd you know, travelled, he spent his whole career in the Jardine Fleming Group. And even for him, because uh, Hong Kong was a monopoly too at the time, he really did admire uh, what we were trying to achieve. And he was really sa said, if, if, you've, if you've, you've done this well with one of our most demanding business, Ord Manette, um, I'll give you the opportunity with the rest of our group. Mm. And that, just from a deal size point of view, kind of uh, increased our business by like 50% in one deal. David, you've got uh, telecom in the name, but you're not the traditional sort of telco. You're, you're a lot of other things, data infrastructure, data centres. Do you want to just give more flavour to what Macquarie Telecom actually does? Yeah, so a lot of these things I talked about earlier were related to our telecom business, which is our still in our name. These days, that's uh, just under half our company. Uh, the other half of our business is uh, big physical data centres. Uh, we've got three large data centres um, and we're looking to build a fourth one in the next 12 months. And these are um, big infrastructure assets. They last for 30 years uh, and they're, as a result, they're capital hungry, uh, but they offer very strong stable returns. This second part of the data centre business, of the, of the data centre business, what goes inside the data centres, mm -hmm. and we do what we call cloud services for corporate customers, and that's been very successful for us. Customers like BPay uh, use those services, so all the BPay transactions run across our infrastructure, right. for example, and we've got to keep that running 24-7, and people rely on that for critical payments. And the final part is our government business unit uh, that focuses on cybersecurity and secure cloud for federal government. And we protect about 42% of federal government agencies against viruses and hackers. So, yeah, these days, uh, we, we, the Matari Telecom Group is very much a, a group of businesses uh, that work closely together. Yeah. And, and uh, with sort of people like Amazon, we know that uh, their fastest business has been their AWS, their, their cloud business. Are you competing against the likes of Amazon or do you have a, a different sort of part in that sort of spectrum of, of cloud businesses where you pitch? Yeah, the uh, Amazon Web Services business is, as, it, as the name says, much more web-facing web -facing applications, so websites, and, and they've done well in that space. Uh, we do have customers who have their websites with us as well, but less so these days. We're much more the core IT applications that are in, deep inside a business where customers want to keep them secure, mm -hmm. 
they want to run them at high levels of performance, and they want to have absolute confidence about where they reside and where their data has been kept. So we're much more the core systems IT people rather than the website people. And when you first started, did you have it in your head that you were going to go after big customers as opposed to, like, there are some businesses will have, go for any, any bugger with a, a wallet, you know, any, any customer is a possibility. But you always seem, whenever I interviewed you in the early days, that you were targeting big customers. Was that... Yes, that, 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 first of all, is what I knew. Being from the banking background, my, my customers were corporate customers, yeah. so it kind of fitted nicely there. But it's very easy to start somewhere and before you know it, you're doing small business, mm. you're doing very large business and trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. And it's very easy to then wake up and find that you're actually nothing to anyone. Uh, so one of our core tenements for the whole 25 plus years has been focusing on the medium to large corporate customers. Uh, and we build our services offering around that. We understand what their needs are. Uh, and that's, and I think combining that with a big focus on customer experience, uh, I mean, our whole purpose, our why, if you like, is to make a difference in markets that are underserved and overcharged. So, the, and for us, medium to large customers are massively underserved um, and definitely overcharged. I've often thought, even though you're not liking it at all, but you very much have a Branson approach because Branson identified markets that were dominated by either monopolists or oligopolists where there was no real price competition. Mm. Have you read his book, Losing My Virginity, and did you see any of yourself in that book when you read it? Yeah, I have read his book. Um, and these days, probably like he, I've become more of a business builder than maybe – the entrepreneur that I started out as. Uh, I think the some, some elements are certainly true. I mean, we've got different styles. Um, maybe he's a more a little, a little more the headline guy. He's more I'm, 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 I'm a little more uh, low key. Uh, but while there's a style difference, yeah. uh, look, I, I think I do admire people who take risks, who uh, seize the opportunity, and but I think also have a, a real focus around what they're trying to achieve rather than trying to do too many things. And um, just on a slightly different tack, I mean, just talk about the future of your business uh, and particularly what's happening in the telco and infrastructure space. I mean, where do you see your biggest, who are your biggest competitors and what are the, how are you responding to them? Yeah, so we're, we've got the four businesses I described earlier. Uh, in telecom, it's easy. Our, our first, our largest competitor is Telstra and our mm -hmm. second largest is Telstra and our third largest is Telstra. <laughs> and, uh, they, Telstra. They still <laughs> dominate the market significantly. Uh, so, you know, frankly, our success is about competing with them uh, and I think we've got a pretty clear market. They've been very focused on offshoring their staff um, and outsourcing um, and doing very severe cutbacks. In fact, 8,000 staff are going the next year. So with that sort of environment, you know, we can really differentiate. Uh, in the other business, is very different. In, in the data centre business, um, we have two foreign competitors uh, and NextDC, mm -hmm. an Australian listed company. We've got literally 500 metres away from next to his data centre at Macquarie Park, so we're very much head-to-head. -head. We're the blue team and they're the red team. If you Obviously, blue is a superior colour. <laughs> um, and then uh, in our cloud services business, as you mentioned, we compete with public clouds like Amazon Web Services, uh, as well as our primary competitor, actually, interestingly, is companies who still do have the computer room in their office. Yeah, yeah. That's still our primary competitor. 
uh, and in the government business, it's against a foreign multinational and government agencies who want to do it themselves. Uh, yeah, the question I'd like to ask on behalf of all our listeners is, what's going to happen to your share price going forward, David? And, you know, obviously you can't answer that question, but what are the great opportunities for you which might make the, the share price improve over time? Well, they say every CEO thinks their shares are undervalued, uh, and of course I'm no different. Uh, however, uh, while the market determines the share price, I'd say I think you look at the analysts who cover us, uh, the common feature is that they all do uh, some of parts type valuations. And I think mm. there's a recognition that, uh, yes, there's a significant telecom business and there's comparables there, which are well known. These days, there are also comparables on the data centre front. Um, and we've now, in the last year, given good visibility of the data centre earnings, the physical data centres, so people can do a comparative to XDC and other overseas companies. And then in the private cloud and government business, uh, they're also, they can do comparatives to similar businesses in the UK, in Europe, uh, as well as in the US. So I think we've made it a lot easier for our investors to do some of parts valuations to get to better reflect uh, what the business is truly worth. Uh, and um, the next year or two, we'll try and do more things to bring that to life so investors can fully appreciate the value of the business. Well, there's only one thing I want from you is, is a really big dividend. When are we going to see a big dividend out of Macquarie Telecom Group? Well, we, we, did, we have paid dividends over the years. Yep. Um, we haven't paid dividends until almost a year and a half ago. Uh, and it reflected the fact that we were going through a period where we'd made a lot of capital investments and we're now looking to increase utilisation. We did cease dividends a year and a half ago because we're now going back into another period of capital investment. Uh, the new data centre at Macquarie Park um, you know, will cost something in the order of $70 million. Uh, and indeed, if you look at the entire Macquarie Park data centre campus, it, it'll be if you, at 43 megawatts, uh, one of the largest data centres in Australia, and it will be many hundreds of millions of dollars of investment at the time it's, you, you deliver 43 megawatts in the future. So it's a very significant investment, um, and uh, as a result of that, we, we thought it's, it made sense, rather than borrowing to pay dividends, that we should borrow to build data centres and effectively reinvest our profits back in the business. Well, David, uh, it's great catching up with you. Um, there are a lot of people out there who think that we should be investing in companies that don't pay dividends and actually invest in the future. Good luck to you. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thanks, David. That's David Chuto, the CEO of Macquarie Telecom Group. In that interview, Peter, we discussed with David about uh, what got him into the business, mm. and you've just written a new book, mm. but what do you think is the most important thing for a person thinking about business? Uh, and I'm not sure how that gives you a segue into the new book, oh, no. but, but I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll turn it into one. It's better. actually a great segue, ah. Paul. One of the things I made, made mention of in the book is that so many of us actually go to our money world the way many people go to small business, minus one thing um, – the inspiration and the enthusiasm. See, people go into small business with inspiration mm -hmm. and enthusiasm, but they don't have systems, they don't have a business-like approach. And they don't have a plan. That's right. And when it comes to money, they don't even have enthusiasm for it. Like, they, they, they'd like to get money, but they've got no system really designed, a plan written down on how they, they're going to get more of it. And that's one of the, I think, the biggest benefits of reading this book. I show people how to get focused on getting money because I think 
if you want to achieve things in life, having money is a really good way of doing it. And I put some structure in the process of planning to get more money. And that, I think, is the great turning point that this will have on most people's lives if they're wise enough and economically inclined enough to read it. You too can join the Rich Club by Peter Switzer, available at Switzer Store, all one word, switzerstore.com.au for the sum of $24.95. It's the best $25 you'll ever spend. My next guest is Percy Allen, who writes a, a, a publication for us called Market Timing. Uh, and Percy uh, was formerly um, a head of uh, New South Wales Treasury. He knows a thing or two about economics and markets and all that sort of stuff. And he wrote a, an article recently for us called, Will There Be a Crash or a Switch in Stocks? I'm going to ask him to give us the answer to that question. Percy, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Okay, so Percy, as you know, Paul Rickard is listening intently as well, and he reckoned he read the article and was completely enthusiastic about your conclusions. So what were your conclusions? Well, I suppose my first conclusion is I, I don't really know if there's going to be a crash or not, Peter. That's why I'm a market timer. I preferred to follow the trend rather than try to predict the market. Mm. Um, I'm still very worried that the American market is extremely overvalued on most measures, but the rest of the world isn't too overvalued. So at some point, there will be a crash because there always is. Uh, you know, bull markets always end uh, in a crash. Um but uh, having said that, what uh, an interesting thing that could happen this time is that some parts of the market are very overvalued and other parts aren't. And um, the research I dug up last week in my article really brought out two things. One, that um, the developed world looks fairly overvalued at present, particularly America, as I mentioned. But emerging markets, uh, and including Asia, look... Um, pretty undervalued. So uh, if we follow history, and um, at some point there will be some rotation where markets move back to things that are undervalued and away from things that are overvalued. So emerging markets in Asia will at some point, I think, come back into the fore and, and do quite well. When that'll happen, I don't know. Uh, our rotation strategies, of course, uh, time that we look at the trends. At present, the developed markets are still overtaking the underdeveloped markets. But when it happens, um, the de developing markets could uh, pick up very quickly. The other thing that came through, which really startled me, was um, how value management has done so poorly in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so Percy, just, going... maybe I could stop you there and maybe you could just explain when you use terms like value management, and maybe you're going to talk about growth, just just the different sure. styles managers sure. have there? Yeah. Uh, look, value managers, putting it very crudely, um, usually uh, tend to pick stocks that have uh, fairly low price earnings ratios, price to book value, price to sales, and so forth. Stocks that look undervalued um, compared to um, 
a range of on a, a range of benchmarks. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas growth stocks uh, like momentum stocks usually have fairly high price earnings ratios, they're looking for profits over the long run rather than high earnings at present. And of course, we know that tech stocks have done really, really well, whereas a lot of the cyclical stocks have done poorly. And um, and again, if uh, you know, if one goes back over history, um, value stocks tended to beat the growth stocks over the the long run. But in the last ten years, it's been the reverse. Growth mm-hmm. stocks have been the darlings, and uh, now the gap between growth and value is at an historic extreme. You'd have to go back to 1940. Uh, to the last time that the there was such a narrow gap, but it, but the the gap now, um, uh, sorry, that, that there was such a, a wide gap, uh, but the gap now is even wider than then. And uh, the interesting thing in 1940, uh, as uh, one commentator uh, who'd, who'd studied this more closely said, after that there was a huge rise in value stocks as they bounced back. And so, again, you know, if we look at history and these cycles, some point will come where value comes back into the fore because historically it has performed uh, better than growth. And examples of those sort of uh, growth-style companies and names that people will be familiar with would be names like sort of Amazon and Facebook and I guess... uh, The Fang stocks. The Fang stocks were there at some stage, but a lot of those have now matured to be businesses that are actually generating a huge amount of cash. So is, is, how does that sort of go with the argument that uh, you've looked at, that the, the gap's never been bigger, but sometimes these growth stocks actually become you know, almost, I won't say they become value <clears throat> stocks, but they go through that, uh, they, they start to become very you know, cash and profit generative sure. after, after a period of time. Yeah, but I look more at funds than at, at individual stocks. Uh, I tend to invest in funds and stocks mm-hmm. um, and diversify that way. But my understanding with the FANG stocks is their price-to-earnings ratios are still pretty high. You know, they're still in that growth area, and they've really got perfection built into them um, in terms of their future path. You'd have to be very optimistic about them as a growth stock. Now, as a value stock, they're still not really there. Um, But look, um, at present, the momentum is still with, as I said, the growth stocks. It's still with the developed markets. It's not with the emerging markets or the value um, stocks. Um, But when it turns, uh, as history shows us, it can turn uh, quite uh, dramatically. And um, when it does, uh, people who have an exposure to those areas could find... um, they do very well. Well, Percy, I'm trying to work out because you, know, you say it's for 10 years. I do remember straight after the GFC, a number of fund managers who'd call value fund managers did very well because they would look at the, what the, the market had done to the share price and it was everyone was so scared. There were ridiculous sell-offs and they then valued the company and said, well, the intrinsic value of the company is much higher than the market price, therefore we buy it. And they did well for a while. But it seems to me if there's one thing that's different in this 10-year bracket of economic growth, and it hasn't been great economic growth, is the fact that interest rates have never been like they are today. And so I guess I'm asking the question, and I don't know what the answer is, if we start becoming more normal and we see interest rates rising, would that be a, a catalyst to, to, to be good for those value companies? Is there any reason why we can link interest rates to 
ignored value companies? And I say, it's a great question. I don't know whether you got the great answer for it. Yeah, the, the interesting thing with interest rates being so low is that the Magellans, I mean, Magellans being the, the, the one who's been very successful, and they've simply taken the view that the, um, the normal price earnings ratio of American and Australian markets shouldn't be 15, it should be closer to 22, yeah. because um, the risk-free rate has fallen. Mm. And so uh, if you do your sums on it, the... Um, it looks like 22 starts looking fair value, and the American market's around 22 on price earnings. Therefore, it's fair value, uh, and so they argue that look, it's uh, this time is different. The world's changed, and looking back over normal price earnings ratios of 15 is wrong, and so nothing. These things aren't overvalued; they're quite fair value. Yeah. Whereas the fair value managers would say, "Don't be fooled." Um, this time is never different. <laughs> Things will revert to mean. And when they do these high PE ratios in developed countries uh, of over 20 or so um, are going to come back to earth. But importantly, Percy, as you say, your uh, your market timing signals are still for the developed markets mm. and uh, and essentially still for the, the growth uh, and um, type stocks, aren't they? Yes, our, well, our rotation strategies have actually been on gold, which is a warning signal mm -hmm. uh, since May. Um, but uh, the latest uh, rotation um, charts we published last week show uh, IVV, which is the uh, S&P 500 fund you can buy on the Australian Stock Exchange, um, is starting to catch up the gold and gold's mm -hmm. slowing down. Now, we won't change that signal until it overtakes gold in our momentum um, uh, in our momentum model, but um, the American market is now starting to pick up as are other markets, and so gold may come off. Okay, but Percy, Percy, I'm going to pull you out of your heady world of you know comparative technical charts and whatever, and make you become a, a fundamental an analyst. Now, is part is part of the fact that you know, the U.S. market is catching up to gold? on the basis that optimism around the trade talks have improved over the last two weeks? Look, they definitely have been. If we go to just our – we have a momentum model that's just pure momentum, the rate at which particular funds are increasing in price over time. The other model is a straight trend trading model where we look at, as I've explained before, the medium-term trend, the long-term trend. And if the medium-term trend is overtaking the long-term trend, we're positive. Mm -hmm. And we have been on shares for a while. But what was interesting, when I applied the model uh, in my article to markets around the world, um, every market, I think, except but except Japan, um, was... Um, uh, showing a, a, a positive momentum. Yeah. Um, so I was looking actually more at momentum than trend. And even Hong Kong had the momentum, the long-term momentum had now started going up. Uh, only Japan was still looking pretty negative. So you're, you're absolutely right. In recent weeks, um, the sentiment of the market has definitely changed towards a more positive stance. Well, Percy, as always, great insights, mate. We're out of time, but uh, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Bye. And that was Percy Allen, who is the founder and the writer of Market Timing. Yeah, that's a great publication, Peter, markettimingaustralia.com.au, a weekly uh, weekly bulletin that we publish uh, with Percy Edits. comes out every Sunday morning. 
uh, with the latest uh, trading buy or sell signals, mm. only available to subscribers, plus we get Percy's weekly commentary and then a monthly editorial. Yeah. Uh, $199 uh, is market time. Go to markettimingaustralia.com.au. And why I like it is that I'm hoping, well, I'm looking at this. Every Sunday I look up to see whether Percy's going negative on stocks because the day he goes negative on stocks, there'll be a very good chance I'll go negative on stocks as well. We're talking to Gary Beard, who is the chairman and managing director of the famous betting company, A.H. Beard. Thanks for joining us, Gary. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about something I'm extremely passionate about. Yes, you are. And it's National Family Business Day. Now, that's on September 19. Tell us about this. The National Day is a day of recognition for all the family businesses from the corner grocery shop right through to the um, large companies um, uh, as a day of saying thank you for them uh, for building the backbone of what Australia is all about. So your own company, AH Beard, why don't you let my listeners know about the history of this a very famous betting company. I thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, this year in November 27th, we celebrate 120 years uh, in Australia making beds. Started originally back in the late 1800s by our great-grandfather, a gentleman called Enoch William Beard, who decided to set himself up to provide cutlery, crockery, table and chairs and a bed for all the immigrants stepping off boats coming to this beautiful country with just the bag uh, in hand. So that was his starting point, um, built it up, uh, had the factory on Parramatta Road in uh, Sydney opposite the, the University of uh, Sydney University. Um built it up and then uh, had a situation that the factory burnt to the ground and great-grandfather didn't believe in insurance and so he uh, gave his sons at the time, one being our grandfather, Albert Henry uh, Beard, uh, took a bet off a guy to make seven beds in a week. So he was an upholster by trade, so he took the bet to make seven beds and used the half-gold sovereign that was floated to him by his father um, to get the money to buy the, the ticking, the, the cover on the outside, and Grandma stitched the cover and pop-filled it with K-pop back in those days and made it look like a bed and got a made and delivered seven beds in a week. And today we now have seven factories across Australia, being uh, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Hobart, Adelaide, Perth, and one in Auckland. And uh, on a good week, we can make 10,000 beds. Now, Gary, so, you're, Gary, you're the fourth generation, if I got that correct. I and my brother, who's active in the business, are the fourth generation. Our two sisters, uh, Christine and Lexi, are both shareholders in the business, but not active in the business. Right. So and we I, have. I, I want, to, want to get to what makes family businesses. Great, but is, is there a fifth generation? Yes, there is a fifth generation, which is my children. Uh, eldest daughter, 
originally a school teacher, um, then decided to join our education uh, part of the business. Um, that's Sally, and then decided to marry a, a wonderful guy and have three children. So she's on maternity leave over an extended period of time. Um, but we'll be coming back to the business. Uh, the next one is my eldest son, Matthew, who's Austin Matthew, named after my grandfather. Um, went off and became a Sparky uh, by trade and then uh, took up an opportunity to become the first guy to do a cadetship in the business. So, so there's um, a fifth-generation possibility, maybe, and maybe even a sixth-generation. Let, let's come to uh, family businesses in particular. What's the attraction and what makes a great family business? What makes a great family business? The learnings I've got from FBA, Family Business Australia, we've been members since 99 and the transition that happens between father, mother and children is the essence, I would say, in trying to answer the question correctly with you of how open and transparent that is rather than them dropping dead and then finding out the next day what's going to happen. And then uh, being game enough as uh, mum and dad to talk to the children of what is going to happen with the business and understanding what that entails um, as opposed to we know all family businesses are revolved around the kitchen table or the dining room table where we talk about business at home, which is not good for the family. Granted, there's the, the highs and the lows, but try and get that separation and understand that if the next generation does want to come into the business, and we had that situation where we asked our children to go out and get a job with somebody else first before coming into the business and making the decision to come into the business, um, that they learnt more about the outside world because once you're involved in the business, um, it's all captivating. Uh, we learn from family business that we have three hats. One is a personal hat, one is a, a family hat, and one is a business. And those conversations have to be understood, especially from father and mother and to children, of how you do talk about um, the business and how it's going to move forward to the next generation. Gary, one thing I learned is when one of your old colleagues who unfortunately has passed away, Jason Lee, he always said that uh, at Daryl Lee Chocolates, they always used to make their, uh, their kids go out and work in other businesses so they'd make mistakes in other people's businesses. Um, but <laughs> you know what Jason was like. Uh, but but I, think, I think the thing that's really um, common between family businesses is that they're all different. You know, what works, say, in one business where they've got a patriarch who runs a show like Adolf Hitler, and then another one might have a matriarch who is as tough as old boots. But then you get those family businesses who realise that they can't stand over their kids and as a consequence they bring in, and this is something I noticed in the latter generations, a lot of family businesses have brought ob objective external advisors to their board. How important do you think that innovation has been for helping family businesses go from generation to generation? That innovation is indelible in our future of AHB that because we are so passionate and because we are so emotional about the family and the business, to talk common sense um, 
the opportunity to have somebody who you're just spoken about, professional, uh, who can get rid of those and make you understand what's the emotion and what's uh, what's the business. They, for us, uh, a gentleman called David Powell was instrumental of us being able to move from the third to the fourth um, generation, whereby. Our father was a 100% shareholder and didn't say very much or very little about how he was going to leave the business until he died. That brought a lot of angst to the family uh, on the way he did the shareholding to my brother and myself and my sisters and that the opportunity it gave us as a family, if we hadn't have done it, we would have torn ourselves to pieces as well as destroyed the business. and. As I say, it's not the family that uh, it's not the business that destroys the family. It's the family that destroys the business. And you hit it right on the head that having that opportunity to have somebody who can be has the empathy to understand from four individuals that are our business to have their own voice through him to understand what they're really talking about without the emotion um, has been the ingredients for us to bring together a document called the Rules of the Game, which documents not only the, the, the shareholders' agreement, but the, the board charter, the family charter, to get it down on paper that when questions are asked about how we're going to do something in conjunction with a decision, there is rules of the game that now we just don't jump in and make decisions. We, we, we step back and understand more the ramifications mm. uh, of communicating back to our siblings, especially where mum and dad are both, uh, both the part of this world um, and given us a lot more respect amongst ourselves as siblings to understand just outside what affects family and family business has on ourselves individually as well as taking consideration their spouses. Yep. So in many ways, you've created a system to take the family uh, emotional issues out of the family business to make the family business work. Now, Gary, we're out of time, but if people want to know more about National Family Business Day and, and FBA, Family Business Australia, where can they go? Where can they go? Onto the FBA website. I haven't got that handy at the present moment. I should. Yeah. Uh, but, but just uh, Family Business Australia, go onto the website. It'll certainly take you there. Mm. Uh, a great, uh, we just had our conference in Melbourne two weeks ago. Highest attendance we've ever had. Um, we had some brilliant guest speakers. But the learning, the takeaway, are invaluable for family businesses. Yeah, great. Great stuff, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, that's the show, um, and I'm glad that uh, Gary didn't put us to sleep. No, he didn't put us to sleep. Great interview with uh, Percy Allen there. Yeah. And I think even with, with David, Peter, um, look, it's great to see success stories like Macquarie Telecom doing so well, yeah. and uh, he's a really great player, isn't he? Yeah, so. and I think the really interesting point was that he and his brother, Aidan, they actually created a business step by step. They didn't, they didn't do things exorbitantly, and they still don't. Like, when he's increasing the capital, he kills the dividend. And there are a lot of people right now saying that companies are paying too many, too many dividends and not investing in the future. That's what these guys are doing. Yep, look, a good, a good company to have a look at. Stock code MAQ. Britain's